Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And And we we are are the the RevRec Gals. Gals. Welcome to another episode of the RevRec Gals. As it gets close to year end, we are going to address the topic of month end best practices that we've seen and suggestions for how you can simplify or how you can potentially streamline your month end close. What are some of your thoughts around month end close and what companies can do to streamline? The first and most obvious thing is that month end close happens monthly. So, and, and then you have quarter end close and you have year end close and you might have slightly different processes or standards of how you operate on a month end versus a quarter end, which is totally appropriate. There might be certain transactions or reconciliations that you only perform quarterly or even annually as opposed to monthly. Usually, I mean, if it's a public company, certainly at least quarterly. If you're private, maybe there's some things that you just sort of assess on an annual basis for materiality. But month and close is all about process. And I think it can be sometimes overlooked how important coming up with a tight process can be. Obviously, in public companies, you have more pressure to close quicker. And so you can't uh, avoid talking about strong process around month and close. But in private companies, I think that's an area where there can be a lot of room for improvement because if you're closing for three weeks, you're closing all the time. I think it's really important for companies to really be intentional about what does their month and close process look like and really making choices that make sense. What are your month end processes? What are your quarterly processes? What's your materiality standard? And sort of looking at this as a true process, like this needs to be run with clarity on who's responsible for what, where are the deadlines, where are your contingencies, where are your dependencies, et cetera. I like your comments differentiating month end versus quarter end. I do see companies where they're doing a process monthly and it's really small dollars. So why not wait and just do the whole thing at quarter end? And if it is small dollars, maybe it's something you can do before quarter end because that last week, the variance is going to be immaterial and can be captured the following month or the following quarter. I've even seen companies where they will have some sort of standard entry that they book on a monthly basis just to sort of account for something so it doesn't become this big increase at the end of the quarter. And then they true it up based on actuals at the end of the quarter. This is especially true for reporting with partners. Let's say you, you have a partnership where you're reselling or someone is reselling your product and you need to get a report from their system. And sometimes that can be a pain and sometimes there's a delay. And maybe there's this whole exercise in reconciling it. In general, you might have a great idea about where those numbers are going to be. And so you can kind of come up with an estimate based on history and just book it reversing entry. And then at the end of the quarter, you get your report, you do your full reconciliation. And to your point, you do it maybe three days before the end of the month. You're going to capture 98% accuracy by doing the entire quarter up until the last few days and then book your entry so you can get ahead of the game for a quarter. And then you can kind of do a look back on those last few days to make sure it's immaterial from what you estimated. Playing on that topic, 
one thing I really wish more companies would do is embrace their materiality level. If your materiality is $100,000 and you have your analysts booking $2,000 journal entries, they have to book 50 journal entries before they even reach that materiality level. And each journal entry takes 45 minutes to an hour because you're preparing it, you're uploading it to the system, you may have to wait for the system to process it, then there's an approval, then after the fact, there's usually a list to say, yeah, that's a one-time or it's a recurring journal entry. And that can be 45 minutes to an hour per journal entry. So if you're talking about 50 journal entries, that's 50 hours of work that could be spent doing something else. Creating a tracker and really setting those aside and embracing the materiality. Yeah, no, that's a great point because I think there are certain topics in revenue which are super complex, but for a particular company may just not be material. I've worked with clients where performing an SSP analysis and doing allocation just doesn't have that much of an impact. And while they need to go through the exercise to prove that it doesn't have an impact, they could just not book entries and that would be okay. And it could just be an exercise in showing that there's no material allocations required. And being able to sort of have that foresight of saying, hey, we're going to do a high level analysis to show that there's no possible way this could be material rather than going through and doing a perfect allocation on every single transaction and then a big, huge exercise to book ultimately a very small dollar amount. Yeah. Some of the comments I've heard is you've already put the effort in to figure out the amount. So why not book the journal entry? It's one thing to analyze it and determine it's immaterial. It's a whole nother step to book the entry. And I just want to make sure that people think about that when they're going through these processes. And this comes from auditors too. The thing with auditors is they don't understand the operational side and they don't understand how much work goes into each piece of paper and each file they review. And by saying you have to book it, you're just adding more burden to that team. From an audit perspective, and then even just internal audit or internal review and approval steps, it's one thing to review an analysis that proves something's immaterial. It's another to take that analysis, tie it to a journal entry, make sure it hit all the right accounts. Then all of those entries are going into role forwards, going into reconciliations. And now the volume of transactions that are being reviewed on those role forwards and reconciliations just tripled, quadrupled. And now the auditors have that many more transactions to ask questions about and to worry about, oh, I don't, what, what's this number? How does it tie to the report? Can you tell me more? I don't understand. Why is the label for this say something different? And it just creates more questions rather than saying, hey, here's our analysis. You can see it's immaterial. We chose not to book. Done. Now it's not part of any reconciliation conversations. It's not in any role forwards. It's not in any report in NetSuite or whatever your system may be. And so it really truly does simplify when you can opt not to make those entries. There's a few different decisions. There's let's perform this analysis, prove it's a material, and then remove it from the transactions that we book in our system on a monthly basis. Then there is the let's book an estimate on a monthly basis and only book this on a quarterly basis and true it all up. And so then it becomes this very easy in and out reversing entries and you just 
look at it in that detail on a quarterly basis. And then there's the, we close your books and inevitably more comes in, but we don't actually have to book it. And you can just make a post-close tracker to show that these post-close entries don't matter because errors happen. We're all human. Numbers get transposed. Things get missed. And inevitably things are going to come up after close. But there's a huge benefit to drawing a line in the sand saying, this is our close date. Anything that happens after this, it goes to a post-close tracker. We're not going to keep our books open for three weeks. That's just not, it's not sustainable over time. What I see companies do is they'll have that cutoff and then they have, you know, a couple days or even a week before the quarterly announcements go out. And if they have to, they will book a high level entry directly to the ERP system to account for it if necessary. I've even seen it where they lay them over the financials because everything's been consolidated. Only in the case where you have something really material come through. And often they know what that thing is because maybe what's really happening is there's a negotiation with the auditors on how should this be presented? Should it be in this count or this count? So everyone knows it's coming, but you still have to move forward with your close process. You can't stop and wait because there's so many dependencies. Let's talk more operationally about things like shipping and paperwork and time zones. What do you see are some of the practices going on around that cutoff? I see this as truly a policy question. I mean, if you go look in the guidance, you can find literature about how this should be done. At the end of the day, from an operational perspective, you have to come up with a policy and stick to it. Because with accounting, so much of it is about consistency. You can't be changing your mind based on how the numbers look. <laughs> Ooh, we didn't quite make numbers, so we're going to change our policy so we can get a little more revenue in. Ooh, let's save a little bit of revenue for next time. That's where we get into creative accounting that, that doesn't feel right. Coming up with a policy that gets you materially to the correct place that is operationally feasible. From my perspective, that looks like a policy that says we book contracts based on this time zone. Every company might be a little bit different. You know, maybe you require a PO, a PO that and click through terms. Maybe it's a signed contract. Maybe it's an order form and an MSA. Maybe it's all click through. So there's the contract cutoff. Again, there's guidance around this, but you have to come up with a policy of of what's your source of the truth, especially time zones. Time zones can be tricky around that. Who's processing the contracts? Who's signing the contracts? Where do they exist in the world? And does that change the way you answer that question? Do you ever see a company where their cutoff time is something other than their headquarters time zone? I did see a very funky one where they had contracts being processed by a team in a different time zone. And I can't now I'm I'm struggling to remember the exact scenario, but they actually had two different time zones based on which entity their contract was being signed with. And I think what was funny is that their contracts were being processed technically the next day because that time zone was ahead. You know, I think the debate they had with the otters is like, yes, it's being processed. I, you know, I don't know if it's the Philippines or Vietnam or Australia, but somewhere in Asia Pacific. And so they were ahead of us. So it's technically the next day, but it was for a US entity. 
And so it met the US entity cutoff. But it was tricky because figuring out how those contracts are dated and what timestamp they get, I, I didn't get super into the weeds there. I just know that it can be complex navigating all that and establishing something that is clear and makes sense and is consistent with the guidance and then operationally feasible. I've seen that where the entity is in the US and they have customers in India and the customers in India, they can't use the US date because they need the actual date in their time zone. And so trying to figure out how do you get either both of those dates or the the appropriate date onto the invoice. The ideal answer is here that you're not signing a bunch of contracts on New Year's Eve, December 31st, or or whatever the last day of the, the month or the quarter is. I think that also sort of gives motivation to trying to set up a company culture where you're not booking too many transactions in the last week of the quarter, especially around the holidays. Most people want to be with friends and family on New Year's Eve. They don't want to be waiting for a contract to come through. And and inevitably, a large strategic contract, it happens, particularly if there's upfront revenue involved, all of a sudden it gets prioritized. But coming up with an internal policy and practice on, we this is the deadline for transactions. We're not approving anything special or out of the ordinary past this date unless it's over a certain dollar amount. When it comes to December 31st, what's your cutoff time? And what are what boundaries can you establish as an accounting department to make it reasonable so that you're not staying up on call for transactions that are $10,000? The $10,000 transaction can wait till next quarter. Not in the view of a sales rep. Well, and that's the challenge. And so, you know, in the view of a sales rep, that could mean the difference between making their quota or not making their quota or making it into accelerators or not making it into accelerators. And so that's where that company culture comes in and what the standard is. And actually, recently I was on the other side negotiating um, with a vendor for a client and they're sending their discounts for the year end to December 15th. And I'm sure that there's wiggle room. I'm sure someone comes in and says December 17th and everyone knows that, but it just puts the date at December 15th. So now your exceptions are happening from December 15th to December 20th. You know, if you set your date at December 28th, you're inevitably going to have more spillover. Another cutoff item is on the shipping side. What I typically see is having to get some kind of verification from the shipping department that these hardware items have shipped. If it's for software or something intangible, making sure that the emails have gone out. I've also seen where people will check to see if any of the emails have bounced back because if it's bounced back, you haven't technically delivered software because when you're delivering software, you're delivering the right to access the software versus the physical item. Oftentimes I'll see where companies will do a sampling of orders to make sure. And that's often an audit request as well. It's a great point about the bounce backs too, that, you know, that's the control that you can put in place with the delay of time. Eventually you would hear from the customer, Hey, I haven't gotten my email. What's going on? So from an operational perspective, when you're talking about October 10th, it's fine. You're going to catch it by October 15th. But when you are in that end of month or end of quarter period, you very well could have a bounce back email and not realize it. And it 
not get delivered until you cross to another period. I also think it's important to note here for revenue recognition for software and for SaaS, like you said, it's all about right to access, meaning the customer doesn't have to actually access the software in order to recognize revenue. They don't have to log in. They don't even have to create a username but they have to have the ability to do so. So that means that the company has to have delivered the login information. So you 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 get the email saying, welcome to our platform, sign in here. And as long as they have the ability to do that, the balls in their court, control is transferred, you can recognize revenue. So I think that's an important nuance to highlight there. I also point out to clients, your systems and your servers have to be up and running. So if they do get that email and decide to click on it, they can. So if something happens and your servers go down and they don't have that, you also haven't delivered. Yeah. Well, and, and then you probably have like an uptime SLA that you might have breached too. But also, I don't know, you know, for some reason, the IT team wants to do maintenance during that window. That's not going to fly. That's the software and the SaaS side of it. On the shipping side, I know that I've had a at least a couple clients where there's international shipping and the shipping terms are not always at shipping point. They can be upon destination. You know, control doesn't really transfer until it arrives. And then when you're talking about international shipping, depending on where you're going, that can be kind of a nightmare. Have you seen those challenges? I have. There are different ways that companies deal with it. For smaller companies with a a smaller quantity of shipments, they may actually get the verification of delivery. But most companies I see, they'll do an analysis at some point in the quarter to say, if it ships within the US, on average, it takes two or three days. If it ships internationally, on average, it takes five or seven days or you know whatever they determine is their average. And then at the end of the quarter or the end of the month, they'll say, here are international ones. Like if they have a five-day estimate, anything that shipped after December 25th, we consider to not have been delivered. And just at a high level, they'll make the adjustment to revenue to say it's not been delivered versus having to go through hundreds of thousands of transactions to verify which have and which haven't. I think this is a great example of where that materiality game comes into play and then figuring out what you can do ahead of month and close and what you can do after. It goes back to what is the nature of your business, your company, and how you interact with customers. Are you a low volume of transactions, high dollar value? In which case, it's like those clients you mentioned that will go through and get verification. Because if it's a $2 million transaction, it's worth it. In contrast, if you're a high volume, low dollar value, where there's thousands of transactions and each individual one is $1,000 or $2,000, It does not make sense to go through and actually track down that paperwork. Instead, coming up with some sort of analysis that captures the average, you book it based on that average. And maybe at some point annually, you do some sort of look back analysis to say, okay, how long did all these transactions take that were being shipped to India or to the European Union? And you do a look back and say, okay, on average, they took X amount our estimate of you know five or seven days is reasonable. 
no change required. Or our estimate should be shifted. And now instead of five days, we're going to change our policy to be six days for the next year going forward. You have to come up with something reasonable and feasible because it has to be operationally sound. It has to be something you can do in a reasonable amount of time. And it has to materially capture the economics of what's going on in your company. Yeah, it is nice. Anytime you can do those estimates and kind of back them and then use it for the rest of the quarter or the rest of the year are really helpful. I see that for modifications sometimes or allocations. I guess you don't really use it as an estimate, but it could be those scenarios where you do have to allocate, but it's so immaterial that you don't actually book it. And then how often do you refresh your SSP, right? And then you can use that SSP for a period of time or um, variable consideration is another one where you might come up with a returns estimate where you say historically your returns are 5% of sales or 2% of sales or negligible. It's 0.05%. So we're not even going to book a return reserve. And so you book that each and every month, each and every quarter. And then you do a look back analysis periodically to say, is that estimate reasonable? And depending on your company, if you have a relatively stable company, long history, your returns don't fluctuate very much, probably don't have to revisit it as often as you would if you're a high growth company with products changing all the time, an evolving business model, you may have to look at it more frequently. Yeah, that's a good point. I I had one client, they realized that they needed to come up with a new stratification category. Until they got implemented in the system, they had to assess what's the materiality And if it was immaterial, then they just generally passed on it until the change came into play. That's a great point about how your business might evolve, but it takes a while for your operations and your automation to catch up because you might have a great automation tool, but as your business changes, you might have to reconfigure it. Or maybe you have an acquisition that has a slightly different business model during that interim time, doing exactly what you said, doing some sort of assessment, maybe it turns into a topside adjustment, but maybe it it's just an analysis to show that it's immaterial and you can move on. So I think we covered most of the big issues I see in ways we can consolidate, make it simpler, hopefully allow people to work a little bit less. And it may not even be working less so much as working more smartly instead of having to spend time on all of these details and all these little journal entries, being able to give your analyst the opportunities to work on bigger thought-provoking issues. This concludes our episode. Stay tuned bi-weekly as we talk all things revenue recognition. You can be notified of new episodes and other information by following us on LinkedIn. Feedback and topic suggestions are always welcome through LinkedIn or by emailing us at revretgals at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.